This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. And you can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Over and over again, I tell you about great deals at T-Mobile, but today I'm going to tell you about T-Mobile getting fined for doing something wrong. And that'll be along just a little later. And later yet, I know this sounds impossible, but there's a simple change happening with credit reports and credit scoring that a huge number of Americans are going to see their credit scores rise under some of the common scoring models that are used to evaluate you for loans and other purposes. I'm going to talk right now about something that I have had for 15 months, and that is an electric scooter. I have a little scooter that folds up, has tiny wheels on it, has a platform that you step on, kind of like a skateboard platform, but it has a handle that unlocks and goes up, and you hold on to it, and you ride it. And this is a last-mile solution for me from time to time when trying to figure out where to park a car or anything like that is not going to work. If you live in a rural area, you're like, I'm so glad I don't have problems like these. But anyway, these scooters are ultra cheap, fast, efficient, cheap to buy, cheap to run. And the one I have, I paid $250 something for. And it zips along about, uh, says 15 miles an hour. I think it only goes like 12. But it's a lot quicker than I can walk, quicker than I waddle as I jog. And it just folds up and then carry it in somewhere. Well, now, in city after city in the United States, scooter rental services are appearing that have very strong friends and equally strong foes. And these scooters are what are known as dockless, like the new bicycles that are popping up in city after city around America of all sizes that don't have to be put into like a docking station to keep them from being stolen. The wheels will only turn if you unlock a bike or one of these scooters with an app on your phone. In the case of scooters, usually you pay a dollar to use a scooter and then so much per minute that you're on a scooter. And people tend to ride them for one to two miles and then leave them And then the next person comes along and grabs it. The problem is where people are leaving them, that people are dropping them wherever. I was, uh, last month? Yeah, last month, I was in Santa Monica, a suburb of Los Angeles, 
and these scooters were everywhere and people were not practicing good etiquette what they were doing with the scooters. But this is the kind of solution that's coming to provide a lot more mobility options. You need like, I don't know, 15 seconds to learn how to ride one of these things. They're low to the ground. It's hard to get hurt, although I'm sure you could figure out how to get hurt if you wanted to. But they are the kind of idea that's cheap, versatile, quick, and relatively safe. Um, I was not wearing a helmet a few weeks ago riding mine, and a gentleman made a U-turn, came back, got out of his car, stopped me to talk to me about why I should always wear a helmet riding my scooter, and I appreciate that and accept that because he's right. But when you think about transportation, there is no one-size-fits-all with such a diverse country like ours. And there are so many different things that are coming along. Producer Joel commutes several days a week on a bike and gets to work stinky on the bike, but is getting great exercise. Uh, Joel is 34. That's right. And you were never into exercise when I first met you. No. And now you become really fit riding the bike more days than not commuting. Yeah, I'm just not going to spend the time to go to the gym. It's just not something I value or care about. And riding the bike has been this like perfect thing that doesn't take me that much extra time in my day. But I do feel better riding my bike more and more often. And actually, with your commute path, you're saying that wrong because it's quicker most of the time riding a bike... That's true. A network of bike paths you can ride than driving your own car. Yeah, for most people, it's going to take a little bit longer to, you know, to work on your bike, depending on how far you live away from work. But for me, it actually, especially on the way home, does save me time, which is awesome. Donna is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Donna. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. So, Donna, you got something going on in your life. You've, you're making some money selling something. Is that true? Yes, I have a rental home, and I have a home that I live in, and it seems like the realtors all want to get me on their list because the real estate market is, uh, you know, supply and demand. So I haven't signed anything, and I don't know what to do. You know, maybe sell the rental first and take a hit with the capital gains. Um, I don't know. Well, the capital gains tax rate's pretty favorable. Uh, for most taxpayers, effectively, you're going to be somewhere around 20% or less on the gain. Um, have you been depreciating the rental property over the years on your taxes? It's only, I've only rented it for two years. Ah, so it was your personal residence before. Yes. So you can sell it tax-free right now. I can. Yeah, so... Their rules are uh, a little arcane, but not crazy. You have an exemption when you sell a property that was your personal residence, and you sell it close enough to when you converted it from a personal residence to a rental property, that the first quarter million dollars in profit as a single individual or half a million dollars as a married couple flows to you tax-free. Oh. 
Does that complicate your decision making? No, because I, I don't want to pay any taxes, of course. You know, well, how much profit do you have from what you originally paid for the house? To what I you'd... paid 59000 for it. And I lived in it for 25 years, but I, I remodeled it. You know, I put thousands into it. Well, the remodel does what's called adjusting the basis. So the remodel would act as, if you've got good records, would act as part of the original purchase price and raise that from the 59000 Okay. So you only so have I'm... to occupy the property two of the last five years in order to be able to exempt the first... Are you single or married? Single. So you are able to exempt the first quarter million dollars in profit and pay no tax. And of course, I'm not going to make a quarter million. Well, then it's completely a tax-free deal. Oh. Well, everybody's saying I was going to have to pay capital gains. No, if you had had it as a rental property for a significant number of years, yes. But in your case, if it's only been two years since you bought the other house, and it's only been a rental property for those two years, you have a window of up to the third year where you can sell it tax-free. Okay, great. And these rules are explained everywhere. You want a simple explanation, though, that is in English we can all understand? Go read the explanation on Investopedia.com. Investopedia, okay. And so I would say that selling that rental property and pocketing the gain tax-free sounds like a good possibility for you. Yeah, yes. Unless you love being a landlord. No. Okay, then. (laughs) Definite no. So sell that baby. Leonard's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Leonard. How are you? Hi, Hi, Clark. Thank you so much for taking my call. It's an absolute honor and privilege to speak with you. Well, thank Um, you. I've been listening to you over the years, and uh, you are the man who's made it chic to be cheap. Thank and you. I appreciate that. <laughs> my my dad's an economist, so always wants us to get the best deal. So so here's what's going on with me. Right now, I drive a 1997 Jeep Grand Cherokee. See, I'm from the Clark School of like, <laughs> if something's paid for, you just drive it until it dies. You realize well, that it, car is a full generation old. <laughs> I know. It, I think if. I think I could actually register it as an antique. I'm not exactly certain. <laughs> right, so, so I want people to think about this. Bill Clinton was president when that car was made. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's good. Yeah, you know, and it served me well. And actually, it still runs. Uh, you know, I use it for gardening so that, you know, the back has gotten kind of muddy and dirty. And it's really not a vehicle that I can take for long distances or have friends ride in. So I'm thinking I want to get a new car. But listening to you, I've learned that if you buy a new car, as soon as you drive it out of the lot, you've lost money, which means, listening to you, that I'm in the market for a used car. So I know the car that I want, and I started looking on the Internet. And, uh, you know, there, I mean, there are a lot of cars listed on the Internet, but I found this company that um, deals with, cars that have branded titles and oh. i looked up what a branded title was that that is that is a uh indirect lingo so that you won't hear the word salvage 
<laughs> exactly. You know, I, th- I thought about this guy in the used car lot with the branding iron as the car comes in. But anyway. So let me tell you what that means. A salvage title car, or as they're calling it, branded, means that the car has been totaled in an accident. Could have been totaled from a flood. Could have, but most often it's because it was in a bad accident and it's been stitched back together. Sometimes a salvage car is where they take parts from multiple cars and sew them together to make one car that runs more or less. Oh, okay. So I I have a friend who only buys salvage title cars, and she swears by it, but you got to be the right buyer for a salvage title car because, yeah, you're going to get it a lot cheaper, but you could be buying... Uh, some serious trouble, particularly on the safety side. Well, here, here's the story. You know, I'm a researcher by trade, and you know, with all these car ads, they have the VIN numbers. <clears throat> so I thought I would plug the VIN number into Google and see what came up. And uh, the salesman on the phone told me that it had been, you know, a water damaged car. And I looked up the VIN number, and indeed, it was from the floods in Houston. And uh, it had been auctioned off uh, originally, you know, to this company that's now reselling it. And the auction company, you know, I plugged the VIN number in, saw the auction company. They had pictures of this car. Uh, And also it said, like, you know, starts and runs. So I'm thinking, okay, if it starts and runs, that means there's one positive thing uh, about this car. (laughs) Well, flood cars, I should tell you, flood cars can deteriorate over time. And this is, you'd have to buy this kind of like, you know what a junk bond is, since your dad's an economist? (laughs) Yes. This is the equivalent of a junk bond automobile. Wow. And you're you're so cheap. I mean, keeping a car that goes back to how many presidents back from when it was made, what I would say is with as thrifty as you are, why don't you look at a three- or four-year-old car? Because there you're going to benefit so much from uh, the heavy depreciation that occurs in those first three to four years. Get a good deal on a car and just drive it for a long time and stay away from the salvage. That's just my advice. If you want to go the salvage route, send me pictures years from now showing me how wrong I was. Today's Clark Rageous moment is one of those things. Who knew? So you ever dial somebody and the phone rings again and again and you give up and then you talk to the person later and they say, that's weird. I don't have a missed call from you. I never heard my phone ring. Well, that is the topic of today's Clark Rageous moment. Spams. Rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. In an absolutely stupid practice, I don't know what they were thinking, T-Mobile is having to pay a $40 million fine to federal regulators because they were faking a phone ringing. Yes, it's true, they were faking it, most often involving calls being placed into rural areas by a T-Mobile customer calling somebody living in a rural area 
Apparently those calls are a little more problematic to connect. So that you would think that the call was just happening, it would ring and ring and ring, but actually the call hadn't gone through yet at all in case after case after case. T-Mobile has paid the fine. They, as best corporations can do, they have apologized and they've discontinued the practice. But I can tell you, you know, cell phones are amazing for what they do. I mean, it's just incredible how brilliant the people are who design these systems, the networks, the relay of calls from tower to tower, the phones themselves, how remarkable they are. But they are not as reliable and dependable as the old, old, old legacy phone systems we used to use that were all wires connected to each other over telephone lines. So just know that sometimes funny stuff was taking place, and who knew? I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where hopefully you're empowered with information, with knowledge, that will help you pack a punch in your wallet. I want you to learn ways to keep more of what you make. And you can follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. So credit scores fit in so many places in our lives. And the way those scores are developed is something that changes over time based on industry research and practices and then pressure from the government. Well, there was a study done by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that found that there was great inaccuracy in the information being reported to credit bureaus and then in turn calculating a credit score for things like tax liens and judgments. And so people were being improperly tarnished with information saying that they had a tax lien or a judgment that they actually didn't have. So now that information has been phasing out, but now it is gone from the credit reporting system. And so there are people who falsely had judgments on their report or falsely had tax liens on their report that will see significant movements in their scores. On the other hand, If you had other information on your report, like late pays, then just the fact that there was a judgment or a lien will make basically no difference at all in what your credit score is. But if your report was clean, no late pays, your ratios were good on how you're using credit, then having the tax lien or judgment removed will make a big difference. I learned this years ago. Um, The last time I had a mortgage, which was, it's been a a while ago. Anyway, there was a, um, a tax lien showing on one of my three credit reports, not on the other two. And that tax lien was like taking an ax to my credit score. Well, there was no tax lien. It was in error. And whatever servicing bureau that 
credit bureau was using to call lien records had made a mistake. And it was a hassle to get it removed, even though it was not a valid lien. But I got it done, and it slowed down things for me in getting that mortgage. But I got it done, and everything was fine, eventually. But the fact is that the industry has been holding this whole thing together with rubber bands, and because of the inaccuracy of the data, removing it was the right decision. Now, here's the hard part, though. As lenders have a smaller number of data points to pull on, it becomes harder to differentiate who is a higher risk and who's a lower risk, and that's just a fact of the game. But if the industry can't be accurate to start with, and that inaccuracy is harming people, removing it from consideration as part of the system is the right decision. In quick review, two factors are the things that really matter with how you look to other people with your credit. Number one, pay every bill on time every month. A single oops will harm your credit by a significant, meaningful degree. And don't use a large percent of your available credit. You will never want to use more than 30% of the credit that has been granted to you. In other words, if you add up your credit cards and the credit limits of all of them add up, let's say combined, to $5,000, you'd never want to use more than $1,500 of available credit. You go above that, your credit score gets pounded. Linda's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Linda. Hi, Howard. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. And uh, you are a saver. I, I do. I, I have a question that I've, I've never heard you talk about. I'm ready. I'm a good saver. And uh, I'm 55, the tender age of 55, so I'm thinking long-term. I'm thinking I want to retire within the next five years. So my problem is in my 401k plan. Most of my money is in traditional IRAs because that's all I had as an option. I work for a medium-sized company, family-owned, 250 people, $100 million in sales, and they do not offer a Roth 401k option. And I've been trying to ask HR for two years, and frankly, by their answers, I don't think they know much about it. And I, when I asked them why, they said it's because no one else in the company has asked for one. So I'm just looking. I want to bring a business case to them to see what why they should offer it. I don't know what is a big expense for the company or I shouldn't be shouldn't be any shouldn't be any expense at all for the company offering the option of a Roth 401k in addition to the traditional. I mean it's like as far as I'm I'm aware of there is no additional expense. I offer both to my employees and there was no difference in cost to me and Hmm. I'm a much smaller enterprise, 20-some-odd people, and I didn't have any additional cost offering both options. I wonder why they're so reluctant to offer. Are there, how would you propose this to them? So tried do, they, do they try to attract and retain younger workers, people in their 20s and 30s? I would say it's a, it's a mix, not as many young people as mid 
I would say. Because the greatest ar- the greatest great. argument for offering the Roth 401k is to employers that have a younger workforce. Okay. Because the advantages are so much greater when you have a heavy concentration of workers in their 20s and 30s. And if your employer just uh, the inertia is what is running things and they're blowing you off on this you can essentially create the equivalent of having your own Roth 401k by reducing your contributions with your employer to what they match. Do they offer a company match? They do, but I also fully fund my own Roth IRA. Oh, you you took it away from me. You ran it <laughs> right out of my hands. All right, so here's an alternative, too, that will have the same effect. So you mostly have money in traditional IRAs from past years, right? Correct. So what you could do is each year convert the same amount of money in a traditional IRA into a Roth money as you're contributing in the traditional at your employer and have pretty much the same net effect. Don't you have to do that for your entire IRA portfolio, though? Because you, you don't. You only IRA. have to. You only have to convert the money you wish to convert in a year. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to convert everything. So okay. you can do a partial conversion. Of are you contributing the max to your employer four hundred one k? Yes. You are a big time saver. So you're putting well, aside, Clark. What are you putting aside? Like twenty four thousand this year. With ketchup, we probably put close up. We put close to forty between my husband and I. Wow! And both of you in traditionals. Correct. That's so all we if, have options for. If you could afford the tax, and remember, you're getting a tax deduction for doing the traditional. You're doing. If you right. convert dollar for dollar that same amount of money in IRAs to Roth over the next several years, you will have moved all that money from traditional to Roth. And the money that'll be traditional remaining behind will be what's in your 401k. Because I can't yeah, give you a... a tax I, bill, but yep, I guess you could just do it piecemeal. I can't give you a strong argument to give your employer if it's not tilted to, towards a heavily young workforce. Gotcha. Okay. Do you have any sense of how many, what percentage of employers offer Roth 401ks? I think it's two-thirds. Okay. And even though I'm not 100% sure on that, it's in that range that you can feel comfortable if you want to quote that to them. And Great. if you could just get somebody to call your plan administrator, it's probably an option they can add for no cost. Great to know. Okay. And Thank no you. consequence to the employer, but an additional benefit to the employees. Brenda's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Brenda. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Brenda. So you are doing something that I wish I could get a lot more people to do in their lives. What's that? Well, I am looking into, I just got a policy. I haven't started paying on it yet because I just got it approved. But um, with one of the companies that you had suggested to go through. For what uh, kind of policy? Um, it's a long-term disability policy. Oh, thank and, goodness. Somebody listens to me on that. <laughs> so 
and I'm 50 years old, and I wanted to know how long do I keep that policy for? So a disability, long-term disability policy should be something that once you get, you continue it till you are deciding to leave the workforce. Or you have enough money saved that even if you were forced out of the workforce by a disability, that you would be able to support yourself just off of what you've already saved. Okay. And then the policy that I got, um, and I'm not sure, I wasn't quite sure, but it's, so if I become disabled, it says that it's going to go into a, after I use up my time or whatever at work, then they kick in and I guess for up to five years. So there are various disability insurance policies. Some pay for for the remainder of your working lifetime, whatever they would define that to be, or okay. for a time certain. Okay. And uh, if you had a five-year policy, that would cover most circumstances of disability because most people who go on long-term disability, it's not going to be a lifetime thing. Right. But if you wanted to be extra sure and safe, it would be one that covered you, let's say, to age 65 instead of for five years. Okay. Which okay. would be a more expensive premium. Uh-huh. But the fact that you've thought about disability at all is wonderful because you're three times more likely during your key working cycle to become disabled and unable to work than you are to pass away. Okay. And people... And I- People are more likely to buy life insurance before they're ever going to buy a disability policy. Okay. And the other quick question, I don't know if I can ask, but um, so obviously in doing this, um, there are some exclusions to the policy after they call you and they ask you all these questions and you go through this whole health check and stuff. Um, Should I be concerned about that or? What kind of exclusions does the policy have? Well, like, you know, at one point I I was having, which I had never had before, like muscle spasms or something, and I mentioned it as they, we were doing the intake or the interview and, um, so that, you know, if, if I have any problems with that within the next pre-existing, year, they won't cover yeah, it. Yeah, pre-existing is out. Yeah. Pre-existing, exactly. Right. Yeah, so that's fairly routine. And, okay. And I stepped over your words. How long is that excluded? I think they said two years, as long as you don't, if you don't have any problems with it within the next two years, then it should be okay. Yeah, that is a common occurrence where the pre-existing condition exclusion will be for 24 months, just like they said to you. Okay. I just wanted to make sure, because I was a little concerned and I thought, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do this or, um, but okay. And are the premiums in a ballpark that's affordable for you? Um, So... So again, like I said, I had picked the five-year disability. Um, so I think it was about—I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say about eight hundred dollars a year, the annual premium. And does it buy you sixty percent or seventy percent coverage? Um, I think it's sixty percent. Okay, and the, the idea of that is that if you're not working, you may not have all the expenses you have otherwise, and because you're paying the premiums, the money flows to you tax-free. Okay. So, yeah, you've done everything right, and you can't plan against every eventuality, but disability insurance is extremely valuable and almost never purchased, and I'm so proud of you for trying to get through this process and get it in place. 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Beverly's with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Beverly, you're looking to insure your home, but not with home insurance. What are you looking at? I'm looking for, like, my homeowner's insurance is, um, well, my home warranty insurance uh, is up this year uh, in May. Um, And so the one that I have, um, I've been somewhat, not satisfied with? (laughs) Well, let me say this to you. If you've been somewhat not satisfied, you're doing better than most people do with one of these home warranty plans who usually are extremely dissatisfied with them. Right, right. (laughs) Well, and I've read reviews on, none of the reviews on any of them are good. Right. And so, um, and I've only had, you know, a few things that they've actually covered um, so, you know, and you want to, I, I guess I want to keep it if it's a smart thing to do for, you know, I guess air conditioning and heating, you know, the major stuff. Sure. But from my, from what I've seen with the small stuff, I'm concerned about the major stuff. Yeah, and you should be, you know, these things are a marketing product, not a real service to consumers. And so you're looking with this at a premium of what about 500 a year? Yes. That $500 a year, year after year, is so much better put into your own emergency fund. And when something goes wrong in your home, it's not an if, it's a when. Right. You have that money to draw on. You repair it as you wish with the contractor you would choose without all the restrictions and gotchas that come with these third-party home warranties. Right. Makes sense. So the reason you see so much dissatisfaction online is the brochures promise complete peace of mind, but in real life, that isn't how this works a bit. Not at all. And occasionally I'll have somebody call me with the exact issue you talked about. What if the air conditioning goes out? And they'll call and they'll say, I have this all wrong. My air conditioner died and the warranty company made everything great for me and saved me all this money. And I would say, even though that may occasionally happen, generally it's money down a rat hole that's better kept in your own emergency fund. As long as you'll be uh, consistent each year putting that amount of money in the 500 or putting, let's say, 40 or $50 a month automatically into a rainy day account either would be a great way for you to approach this you're listening to the clark howard show if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast of our show 
I'd love it if you'd subscribe. Whatever your favorite podcast app is, we're pretty much there. And whether you love what you hear from me or hate it, take time to write a review. It's how we all learn from each other is from those reviews. 